My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. My father said, you know, I expect you to stay home to take care of the kids. He said that his mother did that. And she said, well, I love your mother, but she's not a lawyer. And my, my father struck a deal with her. Hello, and welcome to Our Mothers Ourselves, a weekly conversation about one extraordinary mother. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. If you're under the age of about 45, you're not likely to know this, but 36 years ago, a congresswoman from Queens was nominated as vice president of the United States on the ticket with Walter Mondale. Her name was Geraldine Ferraro and she was 48 years old. Now that might not seem so monumental because female vice presidential candidates and presidential candidates have been central to recent political campaigns. But until 1984, that had never happened. Geraldine Ferraro was the first. So in this, the third interview of our series commemorating the 19th Amendment, to tell the story of Geraldine Ferraro, who was known as Jerry, I'm talking with her eldest child, Donna Zaccaro, a filmmaker and producer whose 2013 documentary, Paving the Way, is a rich portrait of her mom, the daughter of Italian immigrants, a devout Catholic, a champion of human rights, and a mother of three. The film is streaming on iTunes. Ferraro died in 2011 of multiple myeloma when she was 75. I'm calling this one the trailblazer. Here's the first of two parts. So Donna Zaccaro, I would like to thank you so much for joining me on Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your trying to think of an adjective to describe her. If you if you could describe her in one adjective, what would it be? Extraordinary. And thank you so much for having me. I never tire of talking about my mother, um, and I miss her every day, honestly. You know, the interesting thing, obviously, growing up as her daughter, I didn't realize quite how extraordinary she was until having or being a mother myself, but also having uh, years of hindsight. Um, And then when I did the documentary about her, I went back and looked at every piece of footage I could find of her. And that's also when it really became clear just how extraordinary she was. Our birthday is August 26th. Women's Equality Day. Yes. Quite a coincidence. Did she ever talk about that coincidence? Every year. She celebrated both. I mean, it seemed like karma or fate. I mean, she fought for equality her entire life. Before we go all the way back to her early childhood and her parents and her ancestors, what do you think she would make of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's pick and everything that's happening now? My mother would have been thrilled by the pick of Kamala. Uh, She'd be so excited, first of all, that Joe Biden had decided to choose a woman or had made the commitment to choose a woman. But then she also would have felt that Kamala was absolutely the right choice right now on so many different levels. And it's, it's interesting to me, too, how, how similar they are in many ways, or their backgrounds are. You know, they're both 
former prosecutors, lawyers, um, very focused on justice and uh, the children of immigrants and uh, rising stars in the Democratic Party. Uh, neither one of them had ever lost an election prior. And so, you know, there, there are lots of similarities. Um, and I think she would have been very, very pleased that, that uh, Joe Biden had decided to, uh, that he was going to pick a woman in much the same way as um, Walter Mondale did. Although he, Walter Mondale was the first one to actually open up the vice presidential selection process to non-white men. He, he saw it as an extension of his civil rights work. And to some extent, I, I think that Joe Biden did too, or does too. You know, I, I think he, he was very focused on opening the doors of opportunity and um, how representation matters. Uh, you know, I went back and I listened to your mom's acceptance speech at the 1984 convention. And, oh my gosh, unbelievable how much humanity there is to her Let's go all the way back to your mom's early childhood and where she was born, who her parents were, where they came from. So her, she was born in Newburgh, New York. Newburgh is just about two hours north of Manhattan on the Hudson River. Um, her father uh, was an Italian immigrant um, and he came to New York by himself and he met my grandmother who was an Italian American. Her parents had immigrated. Um, she, uh, only had an eighth grade education. Well, she was forced to leave school, uh, for high school. She couldn't go to high school. We're talking now about your mom's mom, Antonetta. This is Antonetta. Exactly. Her principal actually came to the house because she wanted her to go to high school and her mother, Antonetta's mother, my great-grandmother, um, said that she couldn't because she had to go to work to help support the family. But she always knew that she wanted an education um, and, and wished that she had had one and impressed that upon my mother, hell-bent on my mother having an education. Um, my grandfather, he had met my grandmother in New York City, but they moved up to Newburgh, and he ran something called the Roxy, which was a restaurant and bar, and they, they also had a five-and-dime uh, store that my grandmother ran. And then he suddenly died of a heart attack when my mother was eight, which totally changed her life. The circumstances of her dad's death must have been really traumatic for her as an eight-year-old. Yes. I mean, she tells a story, she told a story that she was the apple of his eye and she would run into her parents' bedroom every morning. And um, she did that morning, the morning of his death, and her mother said to her, Jerry, don't go in. And she looked in and her father looked, turned and looked at her and then he died. 
and he had carried her up the stairs the night before. And so she, you know, she always wondered and sort of blamed herself, you know, maybe his carrying up the stairs at the age of eight is what gave him the heart attack. Kids do that. Yep. But anyway, so she, uh, her family was then thrown into disarray because uh, her mother couldn't manage anything really. And they ended up moving to the South Bronx. And did your mom have uh, siblings? She had an older brother. She actually had three older brothers, um, two, two of whom had died. And one of them had died in a car accident in my grandmother's arm. She, he had been thrown from my grandmother's arms. And um, his name was Gerard. And so the doctor, uh, when my, my grandmother was in the hospital recovering from the car accident, uh, said to her that the best thing she could do would be to get pregnant again. So my mother really actually always felt that she was born to replace her older brother. But in a but in a good way. Yes. And so she was named Geraldine. After him, right. Mm-hmm. And Jer and called Jerry. Yes. So they go so after your grandfather died, um, her mom moved the family to the South Bronx into a tiny apartment. Yes. She she went and worked as a sweatshop worker. Uh the the skill that she had learned when she was in high school was to crochet beading. She would she would beads, she would sew beads onto fancy dresses, you know, uh, ball gowns or whatever. Um, wherever there's elaborate beading on a dress or a jacket, that was the sort of work, handwork that she did. So she went back to work to, to try and support the family. And because she was working these crazy hours and not making much money to support them, she felt that she needed to get them put into, placed into boarding school. So my uncle actually went to military school. And my mother, she managed to get her into Marymount and Tarrytown, which was a private school that doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, so she figured out a way with the nuns to have my mother's tuition paid for by income from Italy, believe it or not, that because I guess my grandfather had property left to him there. His family had some property and they managed a way to get the income from that to pay for her education uh, at Marymount through through the end of high school, actually. And then she got a full scholarship to college. And so it sounds like she was raised pretty devoutly Catholic. Is that right? Yes. Uh, she, she really felt like she was raised in as equally by the nuns as my grandmother. You know, she went to church every day when she was growing up. And that's why, not to jump ahead, but the attacks by the church on her during the 84 campaign were so hurtful because she really um, considered her religion very important to her. So it was very difficult. It must have been so painful and also must have felt um, like just such a stab because uh, her her Catholicism obviously mattered to her a lot and there was always that looming issue controversy of abortion throughout her political life I'm sure well I mean she also 
felt that it was quite unfair well, on two different fronts because first of all, there's supposed to be separation of church and state. And so, you know, they should be upholding the law and recognize that. But Mario Cuomo had the exact same position that she did. Um, and actually so did Ted Kennedy. Um, and neither one of them were criticized to the same extent uh, as she was. And if she felt like it was a terrible double standard, you, you don't see that in anything she says publicly. No, I, I, I don't think... I, I think she recognized that it had much more impact coming from a woman who could say, I would never have an abortion. Or, I mean, she could talk about it in very personal terms, but I would not impose my position, you know, my personal decisions on anyone else. It is the law. Um, but it wouldn't have made sense to point out the double standard because she didn't want them to be equally criticized. All right. So when she got out of college, her, uh, her options were housewife, telephone operator, nurse, or teacher. <laughs> Pretty much. And she became a teacher. And actually, she loved teaching. All those kids, you know, I think it was second through fourth grade. And, and she got lots of colds because she used to kick, kiss every one of them every day when they left, I guess, or they'd hug her. But she wanted to do more than that. And so that's why she did go to law school at night. And where did she go to law school? She went to Fordham. Uh, she was one of two women in her class. And how did she meet your dad? She had met my dad when they were both in college. Uh, they were both on a double date with other people. It was at a, what was then called a transvestite club. Oh my God. There were a, a, a group of Marymount girls there um, and a group, I guess, of Iona boys. My father went to Iona. Anyway, as I said, they were with different people and my my all the other uh, girls or young women were offended by the dancing and what was going on. And my mother thought it was a hoot. And so she stayed, the other ones left. And, and so that's how my father ended up talking to her more with each with their other dates. At the transvestite club. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. And what year would that have been? I think they were married in 59. So, and they probably went out for five years. So, you know, maybe it was around 55, 56. So then when they got married, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of your mom's story. I'd like you to tell it, their conversation about. So as I understand it, your dad was a very traditional guy. He still is very traditional in many ways, but he's also one of the most progressive people I've ever come across. Well, again, he was raised very traditionally Italian-American. His mother stayed home. But he knew that he was marrying a woman who was a lawyer and not so much like his mother, other than the fact that she also was Italian-American. She couldn't, she had a tough time getting a job, though, actually, right when she graduated from law school and when they got married, because all the different firms she went to said to her, we're not hiring women this year. Um, or we're not hiring Italians. Um, she did get one job offer that was then rescinded when she told them she was getting married and going on her honeymoon because they said that she would get pregnant. So 
um, she was having a tough time getting a job anyway. And when she got pregnant, my father said, you know, I expect you to stay home to take care of the kids. And she said, well, uh, he said that his mother did that. And she said, well, I love your mother, but she's not a lawyer. And my, my father struck a deal with her. And he said, well, how about you stay home with the kids until they're all in school full time? And then I'll support you in whatever you want to do. And the punchline there is that he had no idea that she was going to go into politics. <laughs> he thought she'd go have a very staid legal career. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, the first thing she did do uh, full time was actually go work in the district attorney's office as a, an assistant district attorney. It wasn't quite, um, you know, it wasn't as demanding as politics in that it wasn't 24-7, seven days a week. But emotionally, it was very difficult because she handled all of the sex crimes, citizen crimes, and child, child abuse cases, um, which is how she decided to come up with the name Special Victims Bureau because she felt that all those victims needed to be treated specially. And did she coin that? She did. She created the first Special Victims Bureau. But she used to um, have children testify while sitting on her lap. Um, she had women testify uh, remotely. She didn't want those victims to be victimized a second time in court. You know, I mean, you're reliving the whole thing. Uh, you know, she really had ambition from a very early age. And I wonder where that came from. What, what's, your, what's your guess? I think she got it from her mother. She, though her mother wasn't ever able to realize or achieve her ambitions. And, and, you know, I don't know that my mother ever thought that she'd be vice president or president. But once she was put in the position, she never had any second thoughts about whether she was capable of doing that. You know, she was raised, as were we that you could do anything you wanted to do as long as you worked hard, played by the rules, and did everything you could to do the best job that you could. Which makes me think that kind of the gender stereotypes didn't really phase her in any way because she um, crossed them, she transcended them. And also I had to laugh when I was when I was watching the documentary. This really got my attention when she said, oh, yeah, my mom loved, everybody loved Shirley Temple back then. And I had the Shirley Temple curls and I had about 53 dolls. Yes. And, yes. and I have to tell you that I just interviewed the last um, episode was with Elizabeth Cady Stanton's great, great granddaughter who talked about how her mother was not allowed to play with dolls. And I thought, what a contrast. Uh, you know, my grandmother was told by her brother uh, when my my mother was in high school, why would you want to send her to college? Or why should she go to college? She's pretty enough. She'll get married. It was my grandmother that really advocated for her. But I also started the film with those shots of her in an Uncle Sam costume because she wanted to be Uncle Sam one year for Halloween. And her grandmother said, why not? 
I mean, her mother, my grandmother, said, why not? You can be anything you want to be. I want to know what your very first memory is of your mother as a working mother. I remember being annoyed that I couldn't get her anytime or speak to her anytime I wanted. You know, she went back to work when I was 12 because I'm the eldest and there weren't cell phones and suddenly I couldn't reach her anytime I wanted to. But the other, the more serious side of it was I remember her coming home from work with her cases and discussing them with us. And she actually used to read her briefs to me um, to sort of try them out on me as if I were the jury. And I remember her being just so upset by what was happening to so many of the victims. But I also remember her coming. She came and spoke to my school when I was in high school. And I remember being terrified that she was going to embarrass me. I, I apparently said to her, whatever you do, just don't embarrass me. It's like a mother's job is not to embarrass her kid. Especially when they're teenagers. When did she first decide to um, run for Congress? And what is your memory of that? Well, it was 1978. And it was the spring of 1978. And she had started talking all over the place about the need for battered spouse legislation. So she threw her hat into the ring. Um, You had a whole bunch of other people jump into the race. And she just outworked them. You know, we worked from, and it was that summer, six o'clock in the morning until midnight every day. We hit every subway stop in the district twice during the summer, during rush hour. So the morning rush hour and the evening rush hour. And in between, we would be going to senior citizen centers, to shopping malls, anywhere where people would congregate. And she would make her case. So she didn't outspend them, she outworked them. And and this is not glamorous work. When you say every subway stop and every senior living facility, it is incredibly exhausting. Yes, she was a street campaigner, and she was really good at it. And people supported her, and she won. She won the primary, and then she had a general election against another Italian-American guy by the name of Al Delabove, who actually had... I think Roger Stone was his campaign manager, believe it or not. So the dirty tricks started back then. And were there dirty tricks? Oh, yeah. They said, you know, they started calling my father a slumlord. But then she had, you know, a campaign aide who would go to events with her in the evening, accompany her. And so then there was a whole thing about how she was having an affair with him. So they started having a female campaign worker, company her on events in the evening. And then she was having an affair with her. Oh, my God. So, so that's how my father ended up getting recruited into going to all the evening events with her throughout her entire congressional career. Yeah, I guess I, it's not surprising. Speaking of why she wanted to run for Congress, one thing she said about 10 minutes into the film is, I don't know if you have to walk around telling your kids life isn't fair. I think it's up to all of us to make it fair. Yes. Did she did she say that to you? Like, I'm not going to tell you life isn't fair. Just do something about it. Yes. And she wasn't. She was a very pragmatic politician and person. You know, she always said it doesn't do you any good to whine about or to even talk about how things aren't fair. You look at what your situation is, you figure out how to deal with it, and then you move on. 
So that's how she conducted her life. She never looked back, and she was always trying to make things better and solve problems until she died. You know, I mean, right up until the end, I kept saying, I said to her, you know, you've got nothing to prove anymore. Why are you still doing this? Because she was advocating for other myeloma patients, for more myeloma research. That's actually why she went public with her disease, because she wanted to get more funding for research into the disease because it wasn't being funded. She looked at me sort of puzzled. I, I don't know the exact words, but she said something to the effect of, if you don't use where you are and what you've achieved to help someone else, then why are you there? All right. So she gets to Congress and uh, it's a brutal schedule. So she's basically commuting, right? Yes. So that was actually about as doable as you can get because we were only 10 to 15 minutes away from the airport. So she was going back and forth almost every day initially. She usually tried to make it home for dinner. Um, I mean, she didn't make it home at five. We'd have dinner later than that. And she cooked dinner, right? Well, we, we also had a housekeeper. Uh-huh. The housekeeper would cook dinner during the week. And then on the weekend, she cooked dinner. What did she like to cook? Um, mostly Italian. Actually, I just made it last weekend for my father. It was Viola alla Marsala. But, you know, simple food. It also sounds like your, your mom, when she was in Congress, there was a lot of across-the-aisle mutual respect, collaboration. Yes. And that was very important for me to include in the film. She No, she... She was very much in the mold of um, Tip O'Neill in that she always worked with people across the aisle, particularly the women. I mean, all the women were very close to each other. If for no other reason, off the, the, uh, the house floor, there was a women's cloakroom that, you know, there were only a handful of them. So that's where they would hang out when they weren't voting on things. It was it was basically a ladies' room. I mean, literally. <laughs> I I didn't know about that. I mean, I should have guessed, but yeah, I bet some pretty interesting conversations took place. Did your Did your mom ever talk about those thirteen years she spent at home as a stay at home mom um, as a sacrifice? No, no, because she was always busy. I mean, my mother was uh, even though she wasn't working out of the house. I mean, she was doing a lot of volunteer work. She was doing volunteer legal work. Um, she volunteered a lot at school. She was very involved in our school work. Um, I think she taught an after school class in macrame, which a friend of mine just reminded me of the other day. <laughs> it, it's, it sounds like your mom was the original super mom, but never said anything like I'm doing it all. Well, my mother would never say that she was a super mom. And she would say, though, that you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. So she always said, you know, you have to prioritize things and you do the best job you can do at everything. And it's probably not the best job that you could do at any one thing. But, you know, she told people not to worry about the dust bunnies or, uh, you know, that maybe your house isn't the cleanest, though that is sort of ironic because she was a fanatic about cleaning. Really? Yeah. But anyway, she did say to people, you, you do your best and you don't beat yourself up and you do the best you could do. 
sweet. What did she what did she say to you and your sister personally about abortion? You know, we never had that conversation. We never had that conversation. We never actually, honestly, I, mean, I don't know that I should talk about this, but I don't know that we ever even talked about birth control. So, I mean, it was it was more, we always heard her talking about it publicly. I don't know. We never talked about it at home. And she, you, all of you were raised Catholic, I take it. Yes. And we went to church every week. I mean, I'll tell you a, a story. Um, we were... Uh, it was right before Easter. It was my senior year of high school. And um, we went shopping to get dresses for Easter. And we popped, there was actually, we were right, we were, um, right near uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. So we went into St. Patrick's Cathedral and to, to do confession because <laughs> we were right there. And we went in, each of us went into a different confessional. And I came out and was doing my penance, and she was in there for about another 20 minutes. And she came out, and I said to her, what did you do? What were you confessing to for that long? <laughs> and she said, the priest, I, I confessed that I used birth control, and the pre- priest wanted me to stop using birth control. And I said that I wouldn't. Maybe she was 42, 41, and she said, I don't want to have another child at this point and I'm not abstaining and ultimately uh, and he wouldn't absolve her of her sins until she agreed not to use birth control anymore so she negotiated with him and she finally he finally agreed that she would think about it and she what it's amazing on a few levels one is that she would sit there and negotiate with him yes it was very uh, characteristic of her right And secondly, that she wouldn't actually, um, she had to stand her ground on it. But third, that you, that when you asked her, she was so completely honest about what had happened. Yes, she told me exactly. And and she was always very outspoken. If you asked her a question, she gave you an answer. Um, But the other way that it was characteristic was that I probably... If that were me, I probably would have said, okay, so I guess, sure, fine, Father. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do for my penance. And I would have ignored it. She she was not going to lie to him that she was going to uh, stop committing that sin of using birth control. Um, and uh, so she was honest with him, too. Let's leave it there. Next week, we'll pick up with Ferraro's vice presidential nomination and the enduring truth that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. And the show's producer is Alice Hudson. If you'd like to contribute a word to the audio word montage that starts every episode, record the one word that best describes your mother and send it to ourmothersourselves at gmail.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Until next week, let's have the best week we can, given what we've got to work with. <laughs> <laughs>